Hi, I'm Tyra G, your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal women and those who love you. Fearsome and generous, humble and honest, in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. You know, here we dig deep and we come up strong. We bravely walk into places where tradition has taught us there are just some things you don't talk about. But not at this table, and no matter how hard judgment knocks, it can get in. Beloved, here we live beyond the wreckage. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. Each week we'll start right where we are. The dress code is your authenticity, your inner awesome, and your belief that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. I am so excited about how the show is progressing. We are celebrating the sixth year of proof that dreams can come true. I intentionally created Frankly Speaking with Tyra G for an intergenerational and multicultural audience in mind, creating thematic content that helps keep our stories fresh and relevant. I thank God for every remembrance of you, your gifts of ideas, your presence, and your encouragement. You know, these are the gifts that fuel me and keep me going. I can't do this without you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the Internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Should you miss us, no worries. You can catch us wherever your favorite podcasts reside. All you have to do is key in, frankly speaking, with Tyra G. Podcast. And if you feel like getting in touch with me personally, you know how to do that. It's Tyra at TyraGarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm Listening. This evening, our show theme is curated from our Human Library catalog titled, What I Know Now. You often hear me say everyone has a story. Well, you also know I believe everyone is a story. Each of our stories reflect a journey, not a destination, a process, not an event. We are continually moving, continually growing, continually becoming. As long as we breathe, the end of our story has not yet been written. That means we have opportunities to edit the plot of our story, to reflect our physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional evolution. Author Maya Angelou says, There is no greater agony than hearing an untold story inside of you. Don't let that run away. Take a good listen. There is no greater agony than hearing, hearing an untold story inside of you. Hmm. Hold on to that one. 
Life coach and author Yana Von Son believes of her story, and I quote, Life will work for me when I realize I have everything I need inside of me to create everything I want out there. She asks, what is the difference between joy and happiness? What is the difference between knowing and believing? What is the difference between love and pleasure? She says joy, knowing, and love are what we feel. Happiness, believing, and pleasure are the ways we think. The former are all internal experiences. The latter are responses to external events. The former are things over which we have no con- over which we have control, excuse me, through the power of our mind. The latter are experiences through which we can be controlled by events and people. If we're waiting for something to happen to make us happy, chances are we're killing off our joy. Because joy comes through us, happiness comes to us. If we seek our joy within, we will be happy no matter what is going on around us. When we know we are protected, guided, and blessed, it's easy to believe in more than what we see. In that space, it's easy to have faith. If we have and hold love in our heart, We will always know what to do and always know what to say. Nothing can happen for us in the outside world until we create the energy to attract it to and through our inside world. My guest today believes that all that exists between perceiving something as negative or positive is choice. Let me say that again. Listen carefully. My guest today believes that all that exists between perceiving something as negative and positive is choice. Implied is it's our choice. My guest is dynamically unfolding as our own story. She's a journey. She's a process. She's a student. She's a teacher. She's a survivor. She is hope. I want you to do something for me. I want you to sit back. I want you to listen. And I want you to learn things as Ms. Lenny Vessels joins us at the Frankly Speaking Table. Her story so far reads of survival and a grateful spirit. Educator, author, and inspirational speaker, Ms. Lenny Vessels, the mic is yours. Hi everyone, I am Lenny Vessels. I am the author of the book, To Soften the Blow. It is a book that I, you know, it's funny in the intro it said, you know, everybody's got a story that speaks to you and that story spoke to me and spoke to me and spoke to me. I was driven to write this book about the healing process that I had over an 11 year period of PTSD, learning to manage it, heal it, manage it, do with it, uh, about Uh, The night my father shot my mother with a shotgun in our home was a, as you can imagine, a dramatic and traumatic event for me and, you know, truly the most horrible thing that ever happened to me. But actually, um, it's so weird because also one of the most beautiful things happened to me on that night, which is, you know, I had like um, 
you know, what some people would call a near-death experience during it. So I feel like I really, really touched the hand of God through all of that aftermath. And um, I have been proceeding in this life, um, turning every negative into a positive all through my life. My family was, um, my father was very abusive. Um, Abuse stayed in our family. I, you know, just really went through really, really hard times of uh, terrible stuff. And I had a principal come into my life when I was 14 and turn my life around in 14 minutes. I mean, no, sorry, 20 minutes. I was 14. He turned my life around in 20 minutes time. And uh, I just flipped and went on to become just a really great leader in my school. And later I became a teacher and um, started doing the same thing with students. I used to always say to my principals, give me, you know, the, the students that no one else wants, please give them to me. And I knew that I could turn them into a leader. I knew that I could treat them in a way that I had never been treated myself. I knew that I could say words to them that I had needed as a child. I was, um, you know, the wildest thing. In 30 years of teaching, I never had a child as wild as I had been. So um, then when I got these little ones, I turned them into, you know, just really beautiful people. And, and the other thing, the quote that you started out in the beginning is, um, the woman that said everything she believes that everything she needs and has is inside of her and that is what this journey has taught me in fact i have um become a yoga teacher recently <laughs> after taking yoga for 30 years and and it, I, i'm having a blast with it i had no idea i thought i was just doing it for an education and you know and i'm just really having a great time and um so that's just a little bit of an introduction of me right now i um I read, and I have to, there's a, there's a back story. Uh, when I first met Lenny, I met her over the phone. She was referred to me, and we chatted, and she said, listen, I'll bring you a copy of, of my book. So she found her way to my house, and she brought me a copy of her book, uh, 455 pages. Now, my promise to any guest I have that's written a book is to read it. And I have done that, except this time I didn't get all the way through. So I promised Lenny that we talk about a point where we could then make an appropriate close and come back and finish. But it was truly worth the effort, truly worth the effort. And in disclosure, full disclosure, there's part of her book that resonated with me because I lived the same challenges. And... I survived the same challenge. That's why I said she's a survivor. So many of us are and don't even know. We don't wear that label, you know. Uh, I want to read you uh, the very first sentence of her introduction. I want Lenny to tell you, uh, she told you why she's teaching, but I want to tell you why she wrote the book and how she divided the book up. Uh, I'm quoting her now. On the evening of January 20th, 1967, my father shot my mother with a 12-gauge shotgun at a three-foot range across our dining room table. Yes, and um, it's funny, before I wrote my book, 
I had this um, sentence in my head for about 15 years. You know, you're saying a story that lives in your head. Yes. And the, the sentence was, even though I did not hear the gun go off that night, everything I've done since has been to soften its blow. And um, it is uh, it is true. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the detail so you can understand the positive and the negative part that I talk about because it was, you know, shootings – you know, if anyone has ever been around uh, a blast of a gun and a human body that takes it, it is, you know, one of the most horrible things you can ever see. I was in the bathtub when my father uh, gathered my three brothers around the table and pulled out a shotgun and said, I'm going to kill your mother. You kids are going to an orphanage and I'm going to jail for 10 years. And he right then and there picked up the gun and shot across the dining room table. And um, my mother uh, realized what he was doing, so she stood up and she turned. And so instead of hitting her in the chest, uh, it hit her in the side of her, her arm and her torso, and it literally blew her body to shreds. So if you know anything about a shotgun. And uh, my brothers fled. Um, my little, my older sister was down the hall um, watching Gunsmoke, by the way, and my mother uh, came and banged on the door at the at the where I was in the bathroom, and she said, "Go get the boats." And the boats were our next door neighbors, and she was in a panic. And my, I just, my life began in that moment. I just mechanically lifted my body out of the bathtub and grabbed a towel and my sister followed me and we walked into a jarring warm puddle of blood and when we looked over to the left we could see that my um, mother was crouched at the hearth of the fireplace and my father was driving a gun at her but my nine-year-old sister Mary had gotten in front of the gun and leaned her little body up the barrel of that gun and she had her mouth three inches from the barrel of that gun and my father kept jerking it and saying get out of the way I'm going to kill your mother you kids are going to an orphanage and I'm going to jail for 10 years and my sister in her little beautiful body she leaned forward and screamed in her meanest might no and he said that sentence or two to her, and she said no. That went on for 20 or 30 minutes. At that point, I was with my little sister. So I'm in the midst of all of this. You know, I can feel the blood on my feet sticking, and I can smell things I later figure out is like flesh and stuff. I mean, it just, you just know when a trauma is going on. You just, you don't know what's going on, but you know. And my little sister had followed me, and so I was looking into her face, and uh, she had her mouth wide open screaming. I had my mouth wide open screaming. She had her little curls down her face, and I knew that she was mirroring me at that moment. And her back was to the shooting, and my front was looking at this, you know, this trio of people standing in front of me. And, um, and let's see, um, so 
I kept looking at this horror. And then I look into my sister's eyes, these crystal clear green eyes. But, you know, her little face was squinched and mine was squinched, I'm sure. And I kept looking back and forth and I'd look into her eyes and I'd think, oh, you know. And then I'd look over at this horror and I'd think, this is hideous. And then I'd look back into her eyes and all of a sudden something started happening where I'd look into her eyes and I started feeling drawn in. And if you know anything about Star Trek and space and how a spaceship goes and you have all these planets that, you know, pass the spaceship, that's exactly what it looked like. And I would snap out of it and I would turn back and look at my mother and the stuff that was happening. Now, mind you, I've got my mouth open screaming this whole time and so does my little sister. And they're still talking this way. And I'm looking over at this, and I'm looking at my sister, and I'm drawn in. And I'm looking over, and I'm thinking, this is a lie, and this feels like the truth. I started being pulled into her eyes, just pulled in. It was turned into the most beautiful experience I have ever had on Earth. I was just pulled into this light. Now, I've read a lot about near-death experiences, and I didn't have one because I was wide awake, but I feel like what people get out of a near-death experience, that's what I was getting with this peace and joy and beauty. Then I was being drawn into this white light, and as I was an adult, I thought about it, you know, it might be because maybe my body thought it was going to die. Maybe I thought I was near death during that moment. I don't know, but I know that um, I just was pulled into this place, and that's where I stayed for many, many, many minutes. And back then, you know, we didn't have 911, and when a gun went off in a house, people didn't go in, and they talked about that a lot. They just didn't go in because people thought they were going to get shot, but the police, you know, finally did come at some point. But at some point um, before that happened, my sister was going back and forth with my father saying these things. And then she just um, gave up. She just was, she just wilted into a little what I call a wet noodle. And she, she just said, Daddy, Daddy, I just hate you. I hate you. Look what you've done to my mommy. Look what you've done. I used to love you, Daddy, but I don't love you anymore. I hate you, Daddy. And my father, who had been the maniac, he looked into that little child's eyes, and he relaxed his elbows, and he dropped the gun. And from that moment on, he went on to save my mother's life. And there were many things that happened that night before the police came. And I can go into details, but I don't, I don't want to do any more details because um, what I really wanted, you know, what I, you know, it's my whole life. My whole life is looking at that horror of the shooting. And my mother was like down squatted like a, I called her a little bunny rabbit because her eyes were bugged out. 
and my sister's fierceness of a warrior and my father, you know, looking like he was going to kill her. And in the midst of all that, I was looking into Judy's eyes and I felt peace. I felt just magnificent, beautiful peace that I, to this day, have been searching for in my life. And I actually was fortunate enough at 56 years old to find a man that I feel that peace with. So um, that's the part about the negative and the positive. The negative was that what was going on and the positive. At one point during that night, I made a conscious choice to just keep looking into Judy's eyes. You know, I was thinking as I was listening, uh, one of the quotes you have in the book is from Ted Koppel. Nightline, mm-hmm. and uh, what you just described, uh, the quote is, to those who understand, no explanation is necessary. To those who do not understand, no explanation is possible. So I think though you painted a picture through lenses, individual lenses, it will be seen and it will be heard. But I think the joy and the lesson and the magnitude of the book is when you start with softening. And I want you to, to kind of help people understand why you chose that term. Because you said the, the, the title of the book is Softening the Blow. Why did you choose softening? Because um, that's the quote I heard for about 15 years. I never thought I'd use it in the book, but it turns out to be the first lines. Even though I did not hear the gun go off that night, like I was in the bathtub, I didn't hear anything until my mother knocked. Everything I've done since has been to soften its blow. So I just named the book uh, The Softening, and I didn't get into therapy until I was 27 years old. I did have... Many beautiful people like that, that light that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. I feel like somebody was pinching the front of my T-shirt the rest of my life and tugging me toward Mm -hmm. the light in people, the kindnesses in people. I said, you know, I, I connected the dots of my life with all these beautiful, kind people and not everything, you know, got went great, you know, after my father di- uh, left our house. Um, there were a lot of things I had to do. I went through a fog for four years. I called it, um, I felt like I was dragging a dead elephant through mud mm. for about four years. I couldn't see the future. I couldn't, I couldn't figure anything out. I was just in a complete, utter, you know, shock and fog. And then when I started to come out when I was about 11, Mm -hmm. I said I became the poster child for anger. Just I was livid. Mm -hmm. And I was so angry that nobody had ever spoken of this. And it's funny because I'm the person of the six children that had the details, kept the details, Mm -hmm. stayed present, stayed there. And I went on to be the wildest little thing you ever saw. I'd put my thumb out and hitchhike. I was stealing. I was fighting. I was cheating. I was doing everything that you're not supposed to do. At the same time, you were surviving. I was. And, you know, I had this, um, 
I had this principal, he tells the story that they all sat at lunch, you know, and he'd listen about this little girl. Mm-hmm. And he said, bring that little girl over to me one day. And I had a, a principal said, come on, I want you to meet somebody. And he walked me over and he introduced me to Jim Huggins. And um, I was 14. I was angry. I was walking on a fence. I was about to fall off of it. I was about to kill somebody or I was going to do homicide or be in prison. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. And that man took me into his office and did everything you can to make a child feel safe. Mm -hmm. And then he looked at me and put his hands behind his back and said, what's wrong? God, that got me. Mm -hmm. God, nobody, Mm -hmm. not one single solitary soul in my whole life had spoken about anything. And he's not, you know, they didn't speak about the shooting, but mm-hmm. he's not even speaking about the shooting. He's just asking me what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, I threw my head down like a bowling ball into my lap, and I cried convulsively for 20 minutes. I just went on and on and on and on. And I had snot running down and strings all over my lap. I was just wailing and wailing and wailing and when that man when I finally looked up he didn't tell me to look up he didn't tell me okay Mm -hmm. I looked up and he said um I looked at him and um and I looked at him and I said my father shot my mom Mm -hmm. and I'm mad Mm -hmm. and he goes well you have every right to be Mm -hmm. and I threw my head down and cried some more and he said okay now how are we going to educate you and I was like what didn't you hear what (laughs) I just said and he's like he just went on from there he had me write in spirals and he was sort of kind of like my first father therapist Mm -hmm. friend best friend and I went on to go to his call well I went and I turned into like you know I did sports and I was the class leader of you know, all the classes and finally my senior class president and I went on to go to his college and um I was I was I was I was living, I was having a good life, but you know, um it wasn't until I got to college that um this um this fellow broke up with me. Mm-hmm. And you know, this this man I was dating and I was so broken and so sad and some angel put into my hands that book called How to Survive the Loss of a Love. Mm. And when I read that book, if I hadn't been so elated that it was such a powerful thing for me, I would have thought it was a crime. Mm-hmm. That I felt like it had been withheld from me. It was like information. Are you kidding me? When you go through a trauma, your body biologically goes into shock. Absolutely. It biologically goes into your head spinning and bargaining. It biologically goes into anger, mm-hmm. biologically goes into depression mm-hmm. and acceptance. You know, that is what freaks me out to this day. Our bodies biologically go into this place. We go into this place. And how many, how many of us have a society where we can look at anybody and say, I'm depressed today? I'm hoping, I am so hoping that's changing. I'm hoping our I'm conversations, too. our language changes. I know one of the 
uh, primary goals of an organization, a global organization I belong to, as well as our county, is mental health sustainability. Mm-hmm. We're trying to change the language so it does not show up as black, so that it shows up as gray, mm-hmm. so it shows up as something that says, I'm okay, you're okay, we can do this. And that's a journey that society has to be on now mm-hmm. because we've created darkness for generations just by our misbehavior, shall we say. But now again, what was that, that principal's name? Mr. Huggins. Mr. Huggins. Mr. Huggins. Well, we're going to do a shout out to Mr. Huggins, whether he's, <laughs> whether he's alive or dead. We're going to say thank you for letting Lenny come to us. We appreciate her. We appreciate you. He better be alive. Okay. Well, you know what? I, I found fascinating, and only Lenny. He can. is. He's my friend, by the way. I know him very well, so okay. he is alive. I'm well, not just he guessing. Need, <laughs> he needs to hear the story. He needs to hear the show then. Yeah. Yeah. On uh, in your book, in your journey mm-hmm. to health, I pulled out some things that I love. Mm. Uh, I would like for you maybe to share the organization that guided you, mm-hmm. and then I want you to talk about the power of listening. Mm-hmm. Would you do that? Yeah, well, the reason the front of the book is called The Blow is because I just had blow after blow after blow, and I didn't know what was going on in my life, but I still had this guiding force, this touchstone guiding me mm-hmm. until finally I married an alcoholic and, you know, was seeing myself. I walked into Al-Anon one day and decided this is my path, this is my chair, this is where I need to sit down. Alcoholism is the disease of the feelings, Mm -hmm. and I had left my feelings behind. I was a teenager. I would say I was aloof and arrogant. I just didn't know anything, but I do know that I would say that I was hard before that. Okay. And so the second part of my book, and some people that don't like to read, you know, the horrors of the shooting, a lot of times people have been guided by their sponsors or their therapists to start on page 200 and read The Softening, mm-hmm. which is, um, that's where I learned. I walked into a 12-step program. Mm-hmm. I just sat down and I listened and I listened and I listened and I listened and I listened. And one of the greatest things that that room had was you could not say boo. You couldn't say a word. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you come in, like, where I had been, it's like, oh, I knew everything. I was everybody's Ann Landers. I had mm-hmm, every, mm-hmm. I, I could answer everybody's problems. Well, no. I felt my stomach twist and turn into knots for about a year and a half where um, I wanted to speak when I couldn't. And that's what taught me how to listen. Can you read that quote? That one that you have said Yeah, the one that has uh, page 215. One of the greatest gifts I was to learn early and be forced to continue to learn was the art of listening. I had no idea. I had no idea how to listen. I had no idea how... I had no idea. I had no idea how to listen. I had no idea that most people have no idea how to listen. I had no idea how valuable listening was to healing. I had no idea of the miracles that could happen through listening. 
I had no idea that the bulk of my healing would come through my learning how to listen and then finding people who could listen to me. I had no idea. One simple word could be so hard to actually do. I had no idea that it was the key to unlock my stress. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. You want to go ahead? You can go ahead and read the crosstalk. Mm-hmm. Oh, there is a simple rule in support groups called no crosstalk, which means that no matter what someone else is saying, no one in the room can speak or shout across the room. Why'd you do that? Or, <laughs> well, that's dumb. Or, are you crazy? Or, why, why would you say that? Um, can you repeat that? No comment may be made. And just as valuable, a person speaking cannot refer back to uh, another person who has spoken, such as, I really relate to what, you know, Matt said, because blah, 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 or you remember, you know, you reminded me of something, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just can't mention another human. And I cannot explain to you how so many people have said it creates this force in the room where everybody's words just dangle and they're there and I will say to this there's a quote in um, a book you know one of the AA books a long time ago they said that um, I got into this uh, program or my, my, my sponsor told me that AA was a spiritual program so I got into Catholicism and I got into Est but the only place I ever found God was looking into your eyes and listening to the words that you say And I will tell you, if I had therapy, Mm -hmm. I'm telling you people, that is free therapy. If you can find any human in your life that will just sit and listen and not say a word, no matter how crazy you sound, and look straight into their eyes, I feel like personally that it's one of the highest elevations of um, spirituality that I can feel on earth. You know that part of your body where you're looking at somebody and you want to say something but you don't? Mm -hmm. That part of me that's halfway crying and not crying but almost crying and speaking at the same time? Mm -hmm. Everybody who's listening knows this. You can do it with your parent when you're young. You know, you try to do it with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or somebody, but it's this thing where you feel so vulnerable that you know, the reason my hands are going up right now is because you feel like it's going to crash. You're going to say something that somebody's going to say, this person's crazy, I'm leaving. And that is, um, it is a, it is a, you know, when you come out of a lot of abuse, it's very, very difficult to be humble and humble yourself to the fact that you are so broken when you have to be so tough. I was, as I was listening, there's another quote Uh, that I want to call attention to but as I was listening to you just then you said I feel like I like God was there and it's like when the thing that you're missing most and you don't know it appears you give it a, a label and in that instance you said it was God well this is what I outlined, you know, I marked a lot in Minnie's book. Uh, <laughs> it's yours, baby. <laughs> it's got all scribbled up. This one said, 
Gandhi said, and this one really got to my heart, there are people in the world Mm. so hungry that they will only know God in the form of a piece of bread. Just let that sit there. And and I'm, as I said that just now, I got thinking of what's happening in our world mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing across the oceans, I'm seeing hungry babies, hungry, frightened, you know, and well, need I say more? Need I say more? No. No. Okay, we got you started on the journey, but AA and where you were, that wasn't, you, you couldn't say I'm well. There were things that happened. There were touch points, touchstones that, that jerked you about, and sometimes they were in form of a person. And uh, I don't know if you want to talk about any of your relationships. Uh, I found the one that resonated me the most was with Jack. Mm-hmm. And uh, what looks like on the other side of the door, it is what it is, but it's not what it seems to be. How did that relationship form you? Well, I... Um was with him for seven years. He was a beautiful man. Even though he was an alcoholic, he was a depressed alcoholic. Mm -hmm. You know, he just was a kind, loving, beautiful person that, you know, just did drugs every day. And, you know, I finally got to the place where I didn't know if I was Arthur or Martha. I just, (laughs) my life was in a tizzy. I went off to Australia and traveled for nine months. I just tried to figure things out. And when I came home, one day it just hit me like a ton of bricks. This man's an alcoholic. What did that feel like? It felt so beautiful to to put a label there to go, oh, my gosh, if he's an alcoholic, I need Al-Anon or whatever. You know, I need it. I, I, I went to one hour of uh, therapy talking to this lady, and she goes, well, tell me about your marriage. And I was like, okay. So I told her all these stories in an hour, and it was a real small room, smaller than this one. Uh-huh. It was real small, and I just told her story after story after story after story, and it turns out I was telling her all these stories about drugs and alcohol. And I looked at her and I said, That was your marriage. I don't even do drugs and alcohol, and I am terrified of drugs and alcohol. So I I asked um, Jack to come everywhere with me and do therapy and all kinds of stuff, and he uh, wasn't able to admit that he was an alcoholic, and I realized that I needed to go in and delve in and look at the shooting. So I literally took a deep dive of an 11-year period going in and looking at what I called the blood scene yeah. and the bed scene. Okay. As I said, the blood scene was like it hit me like somebody throwing a bucket of water in my face. Okay. Like I could deal with that. I could see it coming. I could like, okay, this is it. But the bed scene, oh, I forgot to say about the bed scene on the night of the shooting. Um, my father, you know, after the shooting and after he went to help my mom live, they came and handcuffed him and took him away and put him in jail. And then we kids were taken over to my grandparents' home. And before we were sitting on the couch at my neighbor's and I was like, you know, 
something really bad is about to happen. Hmm. I was seven years old. I was something really bad is about to happen. I was like, Lenny, something bad already happened. And my grandparents came and picked us up and took us all the way down the highway. And this is in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, when we got there, we got into bed. Judy got on the, the wall. I got in the middle. Mary was on the edge. And we went to sleep. Oh, there are so many other things that happened. Nobody touched us. Nobody talked to us. Nobody cooed us. Nobody looked us in the eye. They put us in a dark room. You know, the family came in and went around the table, and they started laughing as if you would and when you get together at a funeral. And then it goes on for so long, then people just start laughing. And, oh, boy, when I saw my uncle throw his head back in laughter, I looked at a piece of furniture in the dining room that had light on it, and I said, I will never respect an adult just because that person is an adult. Mm. But what happened that night was um, Mm. we uh, girls went in and went to sleep. And somewhere in the middle of the night, I looked up and I saw a black door and a black silhouette coming through it. And it was my father. He had been let out of jail. I don't know how many, five or six hours later, we were dead asleep. He walked in, and he crawled into the bed with my sister, Mary. I mean, with all three of us, but Mary was on the end. And it wasn't for years later when Mary and I talked about it. She said, Lenny, I was awake. And I told her the black picture and the black silhouette. She said, I saw the same thing. And years later, when I did a lot of my healing, Mm -hmm. I went back to that house, and I asked This is the weirdest thing about Psyche. I asked Mm -hmm. this person, can I come into your house? Something bad happened to me when I was a little girl here. And he said, sure. And he let me in. And I walked into that bedroom, Mm -hmm. and I instantly smelled scotch. That's what the Psyche does. It must have been on his breath that night, but I I didn't know. You had it with you. It was in memory. But anyway, when I say the blood scene the bed scene was the hardest part to heal because I felt like it permeated me like gas Mm -hmm. and so all I could do was let it over to God and say please take this away from me Mm -hmm. please lift this thing out of me and I worked in body works therapy I worked in 12-step meetings I took 12-step meetings like like it was a college course. I mean, mm-hmm. I just went and went and talked to every person I could meet around the world. And uh, I just, um, at one point in um, 1997, I, um, I had these, you know, some big, you know, things happen to me. And I was like, wow, I think something happened to me that day. I was saying to people, I don't know what it was. But then uh, I, in the next day or two, I started getting this picture of a, a large glass vase, like sitting in the living room, like huge, like, you know, 12 feet, you know, in, in circumference. And it was filled with water and there were rocks at the bottom. And I could see all the little uh, pieces of the water or, you know, in the water, little pieces of specks going to the top. And I was like, wow. Oh, my gosh. And I knew right then and there that my vase was clean. And what I realized was, and I didn't know it till that moment, 
I was like a little mermaid. I went down in and I picked up a, a muddy, filthy, gross, algae-filled rock. And I took a scrub brush and I scrubbed it. And it, the, all the mud went flying everywhere all over the place. And I did, you know, I, I spent about a three-month period on each kind of piece of abuse that happened to me when I was young. And when the, when the rock was clean, I placed it back down. And um, then I'd pick up another one, and I'd scrub it and scrub it and scrub it. And so it was just complete turmoil inside um, inside um, this, this vase. And I realized I'd been 11 years, just this mud, just swirling around in my life. And, you know, working through all this, basically. It became your metaphor. Just crap. Mm-hmm. And then one day, mm-hmm. the water was clear. There you go. Yeah. And it was like, oh, my gosh. And so, you know, I don't think it's possible to um, heal PTSD permanently, maybe. I'm not sure. But, you know, you'll always be managing it. But it was just such a, um, you know, it, you know the, thing, the beauty about this is I, I started all this about a year before I became a teacher. And I corresponded with my teaching. And even though I had all that turmoil, I knew how to compartmentalize it. I Mm -hmm. learned how to. Mm -hmm. And I will say that I was able to go into a classroom every single day of my life for 30 years and be kind and loving and beautiful to children. Have you, okay, put a comma there. Have you been able to synthesize how you were able to do that i'm thinking of your journey and the 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 vase the vase you just described seemed like a metaphor of you letting go finally letting go of all of that stuff have you found a way yes to describe yes i how can you describe let, that the, okay the, the, the woman's quote that you had the second one after maya she said that she learned that everything she ever needed in her life was inside of her. And I will tell you this. Since alcoholism is the disease of the feelings, you can place alcohol with drinking or, I mean, not drinking, but smoking or overeating or so many addictions that people have. But it's the disease of the feelings because when we have a feeling and we don't want to feel it, people will take something, they'll put it in them, so they medicate that feeling so it stays down. And I will tell you that in the first year and a half of being in 12-step programs, a lot of people do this. They struggle with the, the, the God part. I decided at one point, you know what? God is my feelings. God gave me every single thing I will ever need. When, when, my, when my heart starts to race, when my body starts to sweat, mm-hmm. When I get angry, mm-hmm. I say, this is a feeling. And that is the key out for me, you know, for for everybody I teach. I do a group called A Place to Go Now, you mm-hmm. know, kids, 20-year-olds that come to me after COVID. And I just say to them, you know, the two greatest things you can ever do in your life in any moment is to be in present time. You're looking somebody straight in the eyes. Mm-hmm. Be in present time. And the next thing is the words that come out of your mouth create your life. Mm-hmm. Words create your life. And you start with, how do I feel right now? 
and just being able that that takes so much courage i tell you what i have a chapter in there called walking through fire Mm -hmm. because for me to get the courage to tell somebody my feelings meant i was going to be hit kicked you know shot you know Mm -hmm. i was you know i was going to be devastated and it's funny i'm not a really religious person but i do love jesus and that the fact that he walked this earth and gave so much to all of us that I always think about the cross that he carried. And I think, wow, how, you know, that's such a wonderful metaphor for carrying stuff and then still being able to be so connected to your source. Absolutely. And when you were talking before about being present, sometimes in conversations, I remind people that the present is all we have. Hmm. I've never seen tomorrow. At midnight, it will be yesterday. Okay, <laughs> That's good. I like that. So, like, what we're doing right now yeah. is all we really have. Yeah. And we don't have control. So being in touch with who you are, where you are, what you are. And um, I have learned when I get to what I call my anxious space, hmm. I remember hmm. What's going on right now? Mm -hmm. What am I thinking? Mm -hmm. What am I feeling? What am Mm -hmm. I doing? Are they congruent? Mm -hmm. What are those things trying to mess with me? What Mm -hmm. doors that I've closed before trying to be opened again? And then I sit quietly. I most often go go into prayer. And, um, hmm, wow. Okay, with that thought, I seem to be stuck in that place right now. (laughs) I, I did ask. Lenny, as I ask all of my very, very special guests to sit down with herself, to sit down with herself and uh, kind of think about what she would say to herself if it were her opportunity to speak to that spirit again. Now, obviously, she's been having an ongoing discussion with that spirit because trauma's like that. You begin to wear it. and mm-hmm. uh, But I, I want to hear what she has to say. My letter to myself. Yes. All right. Well, this letter is inspired by the words that I heard at the Unity Church. And they sing it. I won't sing it for you now, but it says, I am here inside of you. I am all around you. You are part of me. I am all of you. That is so beautiful to me. So I wrote this letter from that spirit to me. Okay. Dear Lenny, you are my beautiful darling. I love you. I adore you. I made you. Know that I live inside you. I'm always with you. I am all around you. Everywhere you go, there I am. We are never separated. I speak to you every moment of the day. Listen carefully so you can hear my voice. I will speak to you through your feelings. Your body is a master of the universe. Every feeling you have, I have given you. Honor each and every one. I am speaking to you through your feelings. When you are nervous and sweating, know that I am there with you, giving you, guiding you, giving you messages. When your heart races, know that it is me, giving you a tool to use. 
I have designed everything in this universe and beyond. When you are angry, know that I am letting you know that something is wrong. Do not dismiss that. Anger is a very, very valuable tool. You only need it long enough to know that something is wrong. Go to what is beneath it. Look for the hurt. Burrow down in it and feel it through. Feel me through. There is the wisdom of the ages in your feelings, waiting for you to discover who I am. When you feel contentment looking into a sunset, feel me there with you. That happiness that bubbles up in you, that is me. The sorrow that you feel, I have not left you. Nothing will separate us. Look for me in others. I am there in the twinkling eye of a stranger. I am there in the smile of a child. I am there in the kind deed bestowed upon another. Be me. (laughs) Give me to everyone you see. Be the light. There will be those who want to take you down, take me down, learn the signs. They will dismiss your smile, your heart, your wisdom. They will be afraid of me. Know that I am stronger than them. I will outlast, outshine them, learn to have boundaries so you can guide them away from you. Like a warrior, stand up to them with your words, your stance. Fight for this light we shine. They will find me in themselves when you say your true feelings. Speak your truth. Be your truth. Listen to your feelings. Say everyone that you have. Follow the people that will listen to you and honor you. Find the courage to look inside you for everything I've given you. All your answers are there. Be still. Listen. Know me. I know you, I will guide you, you have a purpose, and it is to follow the love that is me. Now go run my little wildflower, <laughs> your divine spirit. I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dovetail, I'm going to dovetail. Do, do, do. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I like to leave a little spiritual doggy bag for everyone for that moment where they're sitting and saying, ah, is this all there is? Or am I enough? Or I can't take it anymore. Hmm. I want you to know right here, right now, this moment, you are amazing just as you are. So I want to tell you, there's always more. If by chance, no one has told you that they love you today, Hmm. I would be honored to say, Mm. to be the first to say, I love you today. I love you because you are and have been so willing to grow. And my, how you have grown. You've grown from struggling to searching, from trying trying to do something to learning how to do it. You've grown from fear to having faith, to demonstrating your courage. You've grown in many ways consistently, demonstrating your willingness and courage to take the next step. The step toward the profound and divine wisdom buried within yourself. The archer, excuse me, I'm sorry. The archer sees the mark 
upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, and his arrows may go swift far. I want you to know, this is coming from my heart. I said you're amazing, but guess what? You're also worthy of giving and receiving. Believe you are new every moment, new. Your time, your energy, your mind, the people who come into your life, they're all gifts, and they are infinite. They belong to you and everyone else. You are worthy. You are important. You're stronger than you feel. You're smarter than you know. You're more beautiful than you believe. And more love than you can ever imagine. Promise me this. Treat yourself like someone you love. Hmm. Till next time. This is Tyra. I'm here. I'm listening. And I love you.